You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Annapolis, Maryland. I'm Pastor Joey, and I hope what you're about to hear blesses you, increases your love and knowledge of Jesus, and answers any questions that you might have about him. Our text from this morning comes from Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, You may have noticed that we're not in Daniel. Uh, We're not in Daniel. We're going to take a two-week break. Joey's going to be out of town these next two Sundays, and uh, so... We're taking a small detour in the book of Colossians, chapter 3. Well, last week as we studied Daniel 10, we considered the power of God, what it does, who it's for, and and the confidence that we have because of it. And so it is with this in mind that today we will be taking a brief detour in our study of Daniel to consider the power of God in our lives particularly how certain gospel truths are worth our consideration and reflection. Not only that our worship of God would be true in thought, but also true in deed. And we'll do that by looking at Colossians 3 both today and next Sunday. And this is important because as Christians, the sanctifying power of God will only have its effect in our lives as we keep heavenly realities close in our hearts and in our minds. These first four verses of Colossians 3 show us such foundational realities, such things that are unbelievable to the natural mind, except by the power of God. When you see these things, you are radically transformed, and you are different from those who don't. You are different from the world. And the only way for us to know these things is through the Holy Spirit illuminating the Word of God to us. That is why the Scriptures are so important. And that is why it is so crucial that we strive to keep heavenly things in our hearts and in our minds rather than earthly things. As Paul will go on in chapter 3 to say, we need to let the Word of God dwell in us richly. But the problem is, we struggle to do this. Because our flesh is still pulled to earthly things. That's the context of our passage this morning. Uh, Just before these verses, Paul taught against man-made religion and ascetic practices as a means of personal holiness. He said that although these things appear wise, though these things may appear useful, they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Why? It's because they lack the power of God. Rather than promoting humility before God, they encourage self-reliance and pride that lead to indulging of the flesh. In other words, things that with religious overtones that outwardly seem good are actually self-seeking and harmful. This is the deceptive power of our sin. This is why we need the power of God in our lives. And the power of God comes into our lives when we know and humbly live by his truth as revealed in the scripture. So what we see in our passage this morning are are six foundational gospel truths. These are foundational issues without which we do not have Christianity. And, And without embracing and living by these things, you do not have hope. You do not have salvation. And the call for this passage is for us to reflect upon these truths. Not just once when we come to salvation, but as the regular pattern and and way that we live our lives. We are to have a new mindset that is in line with these realities. And next week, we'll continue on in this passage to see how these truths not only inform how we are to think, but also how we are to live and pursue holiness. So we'll uh, be briefly considering these six things. Uh, Heads up, 
I'm going to be doing a lot of cross-referencing. Um, so they are going to be on the screen, but if you are old school and you've got your Bible, you might want to get your fingers a little nimble because we are going to be flying all over the Bible this morning. Uh, so before jumping in, let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for the power of the gospel. We thank you that indeed it is through the gospel that our lives are changed and transformed. We're thankful that you reveal yourself to us by your word and that by your spirit you show us who you are through your word. Help us, Father, to be a people who are committed to your word, a people who are committed to these foundational things about you, about salvation, about glory, that our eyes will be fixed upon you as we wait for the appearing of our Lord Jesus, where we will be with you face to face, free from all sin. We await that glorious day, Father. Help us today to get a, a good vision for these things, that our lives would continue to be changed. We pray these things in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, here in verse 1, there are three important things about Jesus, about the gospel, that we must consider. That is his resurrection, his finished atoning work, and his exalted position. So let's start with his resurrection. We need to reflect upon the resurrection of Jesus. Paul writes in verse 1, If then you have been raised with Christ. So this is the uh, most fundamental thing. The most fundamental thing that we know as Christians is that Christ was indeed raised from the dead. Now, of course, the resurrection of Jesus only happens because of the death of Jesus, and we'll look at that a little more next. But for now, it is important and it must be understood that Jesus has defeated death. And this has happened through the power of God. If you turn back a little bit in Colossians chapter 2, in verse 12, you will see this. Paul writes, You were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. This is the purpose for which Christ came and is a demonstration of the power of God. And the reality is that death comes for all men, but only one man has come for death, and that is Jesus Christ. And we're told in Genesis that the curse of sin, it is death. All men will die because all men are born in sin. As Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that is Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And he goes on to say, in verse 17, or verse 15 rather, But the free gift, that is the gift of salvation, is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Verse 17, For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, again, that is Adam, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Jesus' resurrection is the defeat of death and it is the beginning of life. This is the death and the life that we share in with Christ by faith. If you look at Colossians 3, verse 3, we read, For you have died. There is a death that has occurred in us. And if you have died, your life is hidden with Christ in God he goes on to say, then that means that you have also been resurrected. Not only is the Lord resurrected unto life, but we by faith are resurrected unto life. And though this is a, a spiritual reality now, it will be a physical reality at the end of the age. And what that means for us now as we reflect on this reality is that our sinful patterns can truly be put to death. We have a, a new life. 
We are no longer dead in our sins. We are no longer slaves to our passions. And we are free to walk with God. And Jesus helps us to pursue it until he comes. And this is by the power of God. We must keep this in view. We are raised to new life with Christ only by the power of God. Notice the verb tenses in these two verses. Paul speaks of these things in a passive voice. Verse 1, you have been raised. Verse 3, you have died. Our death and our resurrection are entirely the work of God in us according to his great mercy and love. It is not a result of our own efforts. We could not kill ourselves. God must have done this. We could not bring ourselves to new life. God must have done this. It is the power of God that brings us to new life, and we receive the benefit of his work in us. And these verbs are also both in the past tense, which means this is a done deal. We are united with him by his power. And this is where we must begin as Christians. We have a a new life in Christ that is entirely dependent upon the power of God to work in us, both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. And this is freely given to us by his grace through faith in Christ. So Jesus' resurrection means our resurrection. It means that the life of Jesus is in us and we are able to live in holiness. Because we are alive in him, we can understand spiritual truths. We can receive rich blessings. And we can know and do the will of God. So reflect upon the resurrection of Jesus and his conquering victory. See how your life has been raised with him. You are a a new creature in Christ. The old self has passed away. Believe that you are a beloved son or daughter of God Most High. And all because of Jesus' resurrection. The second thing for us to reflect upon is the finished atoning work of Jesus. I mentioned just a, a moment ago that Jesus' resurrection is only a possibility if he had died. So when we consider the resurrection of Jesus, we cannot help but also consider his atoning death. The atonement is is that wonderful doctrine that God has reconciled sinners to himself through the sacrificial work of Jesus. And this was necessary because sin creates a debt that is owed to God, the payment of life. The wages of sin is death, we're told by Paul in Romans 6. And the wrath of God is against sin and sinners. But the good news of the atonement is that Jesus has paid our sin debt and he has done this by the shedding of his blood. This is why in the Old Testament they have a a system established by God for regular sacrifices. But these were insufficient. Jesus' blood secures for us an eternal redemption, something that could not happen in the Old Covenant. The author of Hebrews It says in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 13 and 14. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? It is the blood of Christ alone that ultimately makes atonement for us. It is the blood of Christ alone that purifies our consciences from dead works. And it is the blood of Christ alone that enables us to serve the living God. In other words, it is the blood of Christ that gives us new life. Earlier in Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, Paul says it like this. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt 
that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Through faith, our sin debt was transferred to Jesus, who is the one who was nailed to the cross. The payment has been made. Therefore, there is nothing that we owe God as recompense for our sins. Jesus is our substitute. He is the good shepherd who has laid down his life for his sheep. He is the one who offered himself as a ransom for sinners. And friends, this is why the Roman Catholic sacrament of penance is so twisted and false. It teaches that absolution for sin comes only after confessing and doing some deed as a demonstration of contrition which might be a prayer, a work of mercy, some act of charity. This is not so. That is a lie. We are forgiven in Christ alone. The debt has been paid, past, present, and future. And this is why we're told in Colossians 3, verse 1, that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. Jesus sits because there is no need for him to keep standing. The atoning work is finished. It is complete. Remember his words as he breathed his last in John 19. What did he say? It is finished. These are the words of the one true and living God, the creator of the universe, and the one who never lies because it is impossible for him to lie. So, You can take that to the bank. It is finished. The debt has been paid. And so Jesus sits. The author of Hebrews touches on this very issue. Look at what he says in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 10 through 14. And by that will, that is the will of God the Father, We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Jesus' sacrifice as the true and better great high priest is the single sacrifice that redeems, perfects, and makes atonement for all time. And so he sits. So we reflect upon the finished atoning work of Jesus. We are forgiven of all our sins and we no longer owe a debt to God. We have been set free by Jesus' atonement. We are free to live with Christ. We are free to serve the living God. We are free from dead works. We are free from the condemnation of the law. We are free from enmity with God. We are free from the curse of sin and death. And we are now free as God's beloved children. We are free to walk in the light as he is in the light. We are to have the joy of eternal life in fellowship with God. Remember that the atonement made for you means freedom. It means forgiveness. The debt has been paid. Our third reflection here in verse 1 is that we are to reflect upon the exalted position of Jesus. We read two things about this in verse 1. Jesus is above. We set our minds on things that are above. That is that he is transcendent. He is higher. And that he is seated at the right hand of God. Uh, Jesus said in John 8, 23, You are from below. I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. And later in John 18, verse 36, he said, My kingdom is not of this world. Jesus transcends our earthly reality. He is higher. There is a magnificence and a glory to him. 
and this should cause some trembling before him. He is above all of creation. And by that, I don't mean that he is just up in the clouds somewhere. Rather, Jesus is in the heavenly realm. His being above shows his authority. And we see that clearly because he is at the place of highest honor and dignity and power and authority, and that is the right hands of God. And this is really significant for at least two reasons. First, it shows Jesus' authority over all things. And second, it is from the right hand of God that Jesus intercedes for us. Both of these are worthy of our consideration and reflection. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 through 21, Paul says that God, by his power, raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 22, Peter refers to Jesus as he who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. And you'll recall we read in Hebrews 10 that Jesus sits at the right hand of God until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. There is nothing in all of creation that is not subject to King Jesus. As the 19th century Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper famously said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. Jesus is Lord over all. So there is nothing that exists apart from his power. He is the creator, which is a point that Paul makes earlier in Colossians. And he is the sustainer of all things. There's nothing, therefore, that happens in your life or in the world around you that is not under the command and control of the Lord Jesus. Therefore, there is nothing to fear. There's nothing that men can do to us. And your growth and holiness is under his sovereign hand. So the Christian life must be lived with an abiding confidence in and submission to the lordship of Christ. Unless you be tempted to think that this is any sort of tyranny, that we live and die by the commands of Christ, we know from the Apostle John that his commandments are not burdensome. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. He is the fountain of blessing for his people. So trust in his authority and find comfort in his exalted position. But not only does he have all authority, but he also prays for us from his exalted position. Romans chapter 8, verse 34 says, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. And in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, we read that Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Why? Since he always lives to make intercession for them. And the context of both of these verses is our salvation. So, so hear me on this. We are kept for salvation. We persevere in the faith because Jesus prays for us. Jesus is the true advocate. He is the one whose intercession is perfect and will never fail. Jesus stands between and calls upon the Father's mercy and forgiveness and blessing and favor and he does this from the right hand of God. There's a, a beautiful picture of this reality that we get in the Gospels. Have you ever considered why it is that two of Jesus' disciples betrayed him, yet only one was condemned? We know that both Judas and Peter betrayed Jesus, but each have entirely different outcomes. 
Judas kills himself by hanging. He's the son of perdition. He's damned. While Peter goes on to be a key leader in the church. Why? What made the difference? Well, I would suggest that what made the difference is that Jesus prayed for Peter and he did not pray for Judas. Knowing that Judas was going to betray him by the power of Satan, Jesus does not stop him, but tells him that he, to do what he needs to do. But this is not so for Peter. In Luke 22, we find Jesus and his disciples together on the night of his betrayal. They have just shared the Passover meal together, and, and then the disciples promptly argued about which of them would be the greatest in the kingdom to come. And after correcting them, Jesus turns and says to Peter, in verse 31, he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. Verse 32, but I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen the brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times. We know that Peter does sin. He does betray Jesus. But he does not fall away. He is brought to repentance. And he does turn to strengthen the brothers, the church. And he remained, why? Because Jesus prayed for him. Peter's sin and restoration served to encourage us that neither our sin nor Satan had the final say about us because Jesus intercedes for us. Peter may have failed, but his faith did not because Jesus prayed that it would not. And because Jesus intercedes for us, we know that we are loved with an eternal love in spite of our sins. And because Jesus intercedes for us, we have a hope that leads to glory. And because Jesus intercedes for us, we have the confidence to come and follow him. We are kept by the power of God because our Lord prays for us from the right hand of God. So reflect upon the exalted position of Jesus, the right hand of God, where he is praying for you. Our fourth gospel reflection is our union with Christ. We must reflect upon our union with Christ. We read in verse 3, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And in verse 4, when speaking of the second coming, Paul says, When Christ, who is your life, what Paul is speaking of here is our union with Jesus. The idea that our lives are, are hidden with Christ does not mean that our lives are concealed from others. We aren't hiding from others. We're not hiding from the world. Uh, there are two senses of this meaning here. The first is that there's a certain amount of mystery to our new lives with Christ. Realities that are yet unseen but will one day come to fruition when our Lord returns. And the second sense is that it shows the closeness of our relationship with him and it affirms the assurance of our salvation which is found in him. We are securely found in Jesus. And not only this, but Jesus is in us. That's, that's why Paul says earlier in Colossians, Christ in you, the hope of glory. So two important things here for us to consider about our union with Jesus. First, is that our salvation is eternally secure in Christ. Because our lives are, are hidden with Christ in God, we will never fall away from him. What God has graciously and freely given to us, nothing can take away. This is what we call the perseverance of the saints. And as we talked about with Jesus' prayer, we are kept eternally by his power. And the scriptural witness to this reality is staggering. So let me read a few of them so that we might be encouraged by these wonderful things and that we might 
be reminded of this beautiful doctrine afresh this morning. John 5, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. The promise is what? No judgment. Why? The reality is you have passed from death to life. John 6, 37 through 40. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Friends, do you realize that if we are not kept securely in Christ, Christ fails to do the will of the Father. Friends, that is an impossibility. John 10, 27 through 30. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hands. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Romans 8, 38 and 39. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. 1 Corinthians 1, 6-8 through 8. Even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day, of our Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1, 13, 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Philippians 1, 6. And I am sure of this, that he who began a work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Second Thessalonians 3.3, 3, But the Lord is faithful. He will establish and guard you against the evil one. Friends, we are, we are hidden in Christ. And when we are hidden in Christ, we are forever hidden with Christ. We are kept by his power, for his glory, and for our joy. That's the good news of our Savior. That's why he's so good. So rest confidently in your union with him. Our second consideration about our union is that we belong to God's family. We are united with Christ who is in the heavenly realm. In Ephesians 2.6, Paul says that we have been made alive with Christ. We have been raised up with him and that God has seated us with him in the heavenly places. And then later in verses 18 and 19, he says, For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. We belong to a heavenly family. We belong to the household of God. We are of a different stock than those of the world. We have a, a rich inheritance in this family. That is eternal life. And we have access to the Father. We have been given the Holy Spirit. And the church in Christ is being built together into a dwelling place for God. That is what is hidden in Christ. So our union means that we belong to God's heavenly family 
We are dearly loved children by our heavenly Father. Everything that we love, everything that we long for, everything good that we experience and still wait to experience is in heaven where we are united with Christ. Our Father is there. Our Savior is there. Our inheritance is there. Our home is there. Our citizenship is there. Our reward is there. Our resurrection is there. Our virtues are there. The truths that we love are there. The commands we receive from God are there. Our mission is there. Our lives are swallowed up in these heavenly realities because they are swallowed up in Christ. Therefore, we focus on Christ who is our life because we are united with him. Fifth, reflect upon the second coming of Jesus. Colossians 3.4 says, When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And notice the, the past, present, and future realities that Paul has, has presented for us in these verses. Uh, you have died, your life is hidden and you also will appear. Uh, the gospel is a, is a past, present, and future reality, friends. We have to always keep these things in mind. But as Christians, we must hold firmly to the hope of Jesus' return. Jesus will return visibly and bodily to the earth to execute justice and complete his redemptive purposes. Now, even maybe with the topic of Daniel, some of us are going to uh, disagree about the precise timing of Jesus' second coming. Uh, will it be before the millennium or after? Is Jesus coming to immediately deal with sin, judgment, and reward? Or is he coming to establish a literal kingdom on earth before the final judgment? Uh, we are free to disagree about these things in the Lord. But what we must hold to is the conviction that he is coming. That there will be a physical return of Jesus at the end of time. And that it will conclude this age and bring in the age to come. The second coming promises both vindication and salvation. Vindication against God's enemies and the fulfillment of salvation for the elect and the renewal of all things. Jesus comes to judge unbelievers, to judge Satan, all of his demons, and to judge the earth itself. And Jesus comes to reward believers and to make a new heavens and a new earth. And when he comes again, it will be too late for those who do not repent and trust in his atoning work on their behalf. Tomorrow is not promised. Jesus may return at any time. Therefore, repentance must always happen now. What does the author of Hebrews say? Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And Jesus truly can come at any time. Several scriptures tell us this. Luke 12, 40. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Matthew 25, 13. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Talking about the coming of the bridegroom in that parable. 2 Peter 3, 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And Revelation twenty two twelve, Behold, this is the words of Jesus, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. All of us must live as though Jesus were coming now. All of us must be prepared, believer and non-believer. Non-believers must be prepared by coming to him in humility and seeking forgiveness for sins. And that's you this morning. If you're here and you're not a Christian, interested, just kind of checking things out, I would implore that you consider your sin before a thrice holy God. That you would understand the debt that is owed because of your sin. And then you would turn from these things and find mercy and forgiveness in Christ. Because the reality is that your life needs to be hidden with Christ or else it will be crushed 
by Christ. But he is faithful, he is just, he is merciful. And if you cry out to him, his promise is that you will be forgiven. You will be brought to new life. You will be resurrected with him. You will belong to his family as a dearly loved child. So the question is, will you repent? Will you believe? Do not delay, for tomorrow is not promised. Jesus can come at any time. But Citizens Church, the imminence and the certainty of Jesus' return means that we must live with urgency. We take his word seriously. We seek to live by his word. We seek to know him more truly. We also seek to call others to faith in Christ. And in these, we are to have an eager expectation, a longing for the coming of our beautiful Savior. Uh, Hebrews 9.28 says, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. There's an expectation. We are to have this anticipation that Jesus is coming. And we look for the promises that will be fulfilled when he comes. Because we are are certain of Jesus' second coming, we have the confidence to live in a world that is hostile to him. A world that has no hope. A world that is full of uncertainties. And so we endure hardships and sufferings. We, we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, but we will fear no evil because God is with us. And he's with us in spirit and he will be with us in person when he comes. We persevere by keeping our eyes fixed on the glorious coming of our Lord Jesus. Our hope is sure and steadfast. The author of Hebrews says, as an anchor for the soul because Jesus has entered the holy place on our behalf. He is seated at the right hand of God and he will appear again. Jesus says in the last few verses of Revelation, surely I am coming soon. And our response as Christians is to join in the Apostle John's response to that claim. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Lastly, and very much tied up with his second coming, we need to reflect upon the glory of Jesus. Again, we read in verse 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Jesus comes again in glory. The glory that was hidden in his incarnation will then be fully known and fully experienced. All glory belongs to him. There are a few uh, pictures of this that we get in the scriptures. I'll, I'll just read three of them. In Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11, we read this. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When Jesus' glory is manifest, there is but one response, which is to confess his glory. In Revelation chapter 6, verses 15 through 17, we are told that this is a uh, response to the glorious coming of Jesus. Then the kings of the earth And the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? His glory is not only praiseworthy, but it is terrifying. It is awesome. And such will be the response of all those who are not hiding with Christ. One more. In Revelation 22, John gives us a description of our new heavenly reality with God. In verse 5 he says, And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun. 
For the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. The glory of God will be our light. No more darkness. Nothing will be secret. Nothing will be hidden. There will be no more evil. And the glory of God will be the means by which we see and understand everything for all of eternity because God is our light and he is our life. But we will also appear with him in glory. His glory will transform us as we also become glorious. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. 1 Corinthians 15, 42. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. This is the the final step in the process of our sanctification. That's glorification. This is the fulfillment of our salvation. And it comes when Jesus comes in glory. We appear with him in glory. The hidden things in him, no longer hidden. They've appeared. They've arrived. We receive them. We who have been declared to be in Christ, what um, what we have been declared to be in Christ, will be a manifested reality. Our our hidden life in Christ and his indwelling life in us will be fully revealed when he returns in glory. Like I said, everything is swallowed up in Jesus. And what that means for us is that what we know we will be doing for all eternity is enjoying God forever, being in his presence We ought to strive to experience that now until he comes. The glory of Christ ought to be the lens through which we see everything. We put all things in subjection to him because he is glorious. So these are six gospel reflections. Six realities that we must think about and consider. Six truths that are foundational to our growth in the Lord. So what must we do? Paul tells us twice, once in verse 1 and once in verse 2. Seek the things that are above. Set our minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Friends, These are the things that we should set our minds and our hearts to know and to love, to cherish. These things will shape us. Seek them. Hold on to them. Stare at them. Study them. Understand them. Delight in them. Treasure them. The reality is, friends, that you cannot passively know these things. You have to commit yourself to work at them. You cannot gain a heavenly mind, a heavenly heart by doing nothing. You have to seek it or else you don't have it. As Joey has said regularly, your heart cannot love what your mind does not know. You must be serious about knowing these things. And I promise that when you do, your heart's passions will be directed toward heavenly things. The presence of God in your life will become the most real experience in your life. The the things of the world will lose their appeal and their mastery over you. All the blessings, all the truths, all the good things in heaven are available to you but you must seek. 
You must continually set your mind, and the Lord will give. The pool of earthly things is strong. But what did our Lord say in his Sermon on the Mount? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. In Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4, is a call to do this very thing. So as you consider this, ask yourself these kinds of questions. What do you spend most of your time thinking about? What do you find yourself daydreaming about? What irritates you? What excites you? What brings you joy? What disappoints you? What commands your emotions? What motivates you? What do you love to talk about? Are these things heavenly or are they earthly? Are they found above or are they found on the earth? Is it your singleness? Consider the greater marriage and the greater wedding feast when the Lord Jesus returns. Seriously. Consider that you belong to the household of God, the greatest family that you could ever be a part of. Is it your bills, your career, maybe your ambitions? Consider that you cannot add a single hour to your life by worrying about it, but you are in the Lord's providential hands. Consider that humility is the way to glory. Friends, there are great treasures for us when we seek the things that are above. Things that have already happened, things that are a present experience, and things that will one day come with our Lord Jesus. So let's be a people who pursue these things. Let's be a people who are are serious about these things by God's grace, in the power of the Holy Spirit, and for the glory and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. For more information about Citizens Church, please go to citizensannapolis.com.